There's a young girl who lives in a small rural village in a Middle Eastern country. It's a town of maybe 400 people at most, but it's a small town, geographically speaking, with little privacy. Roads are narrow, it's hot and dusty in the summer, cold and muddy in the winter. Mud brick houses are very close to each other. Families live together. It's not uncommon for eight to 10 people to share a single house, all mostly members of the extended family. Tight quarters, but the household tasks, which are many, are shared. Roughly 10 hours a day are spent on chores in this little village, which is the case for this young girl. And you thought you had a long list of chores. We got cooking, cleaning, drawing and carrying water from the well, going to the marketplace, working in nearby orchards and olive groves and vineyards. Young girls like this one don't learn to read. They're not thought necessarily to need it for daily life. And they typically marry upon entering puberty, so around 13, 14, sometimes even 12. And entering puberty, by the way, especially for a young girl in this village, is no private affair, at least amongst the household, namely due to the extra laundry and back and forth to the well for water to proper launder and extra linens on the drawing line. And so the whole household knows when young women are ready to be married. Marriages in this town are arranged, and the whole family joins in this selection of a husband. Such a selection would affect the entire family, after all. They'd be living and working together for the rest of their lives. Engagements are formalized through contracts, signed by both families, along with a big party and public celebration to celebrate the engagement. This contract likely includes a transfer of property from the young man to the girl to be returned to the husband upon their marriage. This particular girl is at that age, and she is in fact engaged to be married. Her name is Miriam, and the town she lives in is Nazareth. We know her best by the name Mary, and the man that she is engaged to is Joseph. But something very unexpected happens next. Before they're married, Mary becomes pregnant, and Joseph is not the father. Now, take a moment to scroll back through everything I just described to you about this town. It's small. Everyone knows everyone. Very little privacy. Your entire household probably knows more than you'd like them to. And so once Mary becomes pregnant, it would become pretty apparent to the household that there was less laundering to do each month. Mary did not even have the choice of keeping this very shocking news to herself. There is no hiding. And in Galilee, where Nazareth was, the contract for engagement was so binding that it could only be broken by a formal divorce. What a mess this is. This does not seem to be the ideal situation here. Disruptive, embarrassing, scandalous. Two teenagers, unwed, expecting a baby, and the young man betrothed is not the father? And yet, this is the context in which the Creator God becomes flesh and enters this world. There is true awe in this story. It is awesome, and it is in some ways awful. But the way that Mary responds to this act of God invites us to learn the language of silence. We've been looking this season at the interplay of sound and silence in the Christmas story, 
And we've learned that the silence of God prepares us to hear the voice of God. And the sound of silence is the sound of a listening heart. Today, I want to think with you about the language of silence. How and when can silence be a meaningful response to the work of God? How do we speak through silence? How do we embody silence in our world today? What is the language of silence? There's moments throughout scripture where silence is the only response to the action of God. In Exodus 14, as the Israelites are fleeing from enslavement by the Egyptians, just before the Red Seas parted, the text says, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And in 1 Kings 19, we see the prophet Elijah hiding in a cave. He's fled for his life and is convinced that all the prophets has failed and he's left all alone, disappointed and disillusioned. And the text says this, The Lord said to Elijah, Go, stand in front of me on the mountain and I will pass by you. Then a very strong wind blew until it caused the mountains to fall apart and large rocks to break in front of the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, there was a quiet, gentle sound. When Elijah heard it, he covered his face with his coat and went out and stood at the entrance to the cave. Silence is a language God understands. There are two things to point out about these passages. First, the first verse, there is kind of a relinquishing that happens in our silence. In the parting of the Red Sea, it's God who acts. And people need only to be still and let go of their own sense of how they were going to save themselves. I'm thinking of a book title that a friend shared with me. I haven't even read it, but the title alone has been in my mind for months. It's entitled, Try Softer. Amidst our tendency to try harder in the face of hardship, to scheme or plan, or heck, even our efforts to avoid or make excuses for not trying, here's an invitation to simply trust and behold the work of God, to notice, relinquish, and be still. And in the second passage, Elijah comes face to face with the Holy God in precisely the way he did not expect. And God uses all different sounds to get his attention, but God shows up ultimately in a still, small voice. Silence is a language of God, and it's a language the spiritual mothers and fathers who went before us learned and understood as well. This is why we have inherited practices of contemplation and centering prayer. But it's a language our culture and our churches don't always know all that well. I was listening to a podcast recently, and it was a group of pastors and theologians discussing silence in the Christian faith, and they referenced a line from E.M. Foster's character, Mrs. Moore, in A Passage to India. And in it, she says, poor little talkative Christianity. Now, the Christian faith today really is not known for its silence or its listening, as we've been discussing this Christmas season, rather for its chatter or empty words, hypocritical words, judgmental words. Our churches are a product of our broader culture. 
which tends to throw out advice, a product, a drink, an experience, a social post, a pithy tweet, a billboard, and just about any other noise, visibly, visibly or audibly, or otherwise, in the face of the pangs of the human condition. But there's something at the heart of the Creator God and the Christian faith that invites us into silence. It's not that there's not a time to speak or sing or shop or tweet, but there is a language of silence that is interwoven into the fabric of our world and faith, and we don't have much practice in it. Miriam of Nazareth knows something about the language of silence as a way to both hear and respond to the deepest realities of our world. So let's take a look at the words of the story found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her six months, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. What a mixed bag of feelings in these passages. A baby? But under these circumstances? Who will even understand? I don't even understand, Mary's saying. And the message from some kind of angel? Now, this may be over 2,000 years ago, but people were no more used to angels than we are. So this is odd, at, le at the least, but more likely absolutely terrifying. But it's Mary's knowledge of the language of silence that helps her navigate this moment. Now, the idea of the language of silence, I must confess, is not something that I came up with. It's a phrase I heard in my preparation for this message as I listened to how other voices and traditions in the Christian faith understand the nuance, complexity, and experience of silence. Silence is more than just the absence of sound, though it is that. It's more than just stillness and solitude, though it is that as well. It's an acceptance of mystery. It's words and gestures that hold space for unknowing. It's a language. But the experience of silence can sometimes feel like being in no man's land, like falling through the gaps of the mesh in our everyday world, as one author puts it, and you feel alone and afraid as everyone else runs at a different pace carrying on with their life. It can be the place where we stand on the breach of fear and delight, as another author puts it. Delight at maybe what feels possible, being shaken out of what you know. Fear at the unknown of the place you're in or what comes next. Doesn't this sound a bit like what Mary must have felt? 
So silence is in some ways also a metaphor to describe these kinds of experiences. The text tells us that Mary was troubled by this. And the Greek word used here is used only once in the entire New Testament. In verse 29, where it says, Mary was greatly troubled. It's the word diatarasso, and it means to disturb wholly. This is a disruptive, disturbing moment for Mary. And yet, this disturbing moment is not in the face of God's absence, but God's presence. So how does she speak the language of silence here? And I'm using speak and language both literally and metaphorically. We speak and use language in so many ways, through our words, our signs, our gestures, our eyes, our bodies. My one and a half year old has literally no words yet outside of mama, 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 but he has language and he speaks. I can tell you that. So the text gives us these written words, this written account, and that's our best starting place. But certainly there is a lot going on between these words. Time, emotions, movement, facial expressions. So back to our question, what can we learn from Mary's response to God about the language of silence? Well, back to verse 29 for a moment, where it says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. She is wondering what this all really means. She may have had some theological questions. She probably has some real practical questions, like how will this happen? And what will this mean for her life? So this is an existentially disruptive moment for her, and she wonders about it. So this brings us to one of the first ways that I think we can understand how we might embody silence and speak the language of silence. The language of silence is wondering. The Greek word for wondering here can also be translated kept pondering. I'm going to get my best attempt here telling you how this one is said, it's dialogizomai. And it has the connotation of trying to make sense of something, to reason, to deliberate, to reckon thoroughly. Mary is trying to make sense of what is happening. She is chewing on it in her mind. And this wondering leads her to a place of faith because she says in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May your words to me be fulfilled. So she is constructing her faith here. I want to go to the next chapter. So we're going to move past the part of the story where Jesus is born because today we're really focusing on Mary and what we can learn from her. We'll get to the birth story later in the season. But I want to take you to the scene in the stable just after Jesus is born. And Luke 2.16 picks up with the shepherds hurrying to find Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger just as the angels in the field had told them. And so picking up in verse 17, the text says this. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So Mary just gave birth to her son. Not an easy task, emotionally and physically tasked taxing in every way, and presumably in a place she was that was not predicted or very comfortable. And in come the shepherds, knowing just where to find her. It's a lot to take in in this moment. And Mary ponders these things in her heart. She's wondering about them. 
but it's a different word used here. Sumbalo is the Greek word used here, and it means to ponder, which it also means to converse, to bring together in one's mind, and even has a connotations of fighting with. What kind of wandering is going on here? There's kind of this internal wrestling. What's going on here for her as a new mom, as a young woman of faith? If she was wandering before, trying to make sense of things, thinking, how can this be? She's wandering, trying to take it all in. Two scenes of Mary on the breach of fear and delight, and she encounters God who completely both disrupts and blesses her life. And she wonders. Wondering is a way, a posture, a language that keeps us open, that helps us to internalize what we are experiencing. Because the movement of God is living, it's disruptive, and it takes practice to notice and know what to do with. Wondering is not knowing. Wondering is not certainty. Theology is the word that we use to describe how we make sense of our faith in the Bible. And listen to how this theologian talks about it. He says, theology is a very human witness to divine truth, a witness that remains tentative and open-ended because historical understanding is not transcendent knowledge. Faith is not sight. So I've known this truth actually for a long time, that we can't and do not possess full understanding of God or the way life works. That's kind of what pulled me into seminary and becoming a pastor. But I experienced the pains of this truth more recently. Last winter, I experienced what felt like the bottom falling out of my life. I felt like I didn't know what I believed. I didn't know, I didn't feel like I believed any of the words I was saying. All the words, all the constructs felt empty and hollow and not real and like they were failing me. And this was surprisingly disturbing to me as someone who has embraced the accompaniment of doubt to faith, but this was different. And I sort of felt like as a mom of two young kids, I felt completely unsure of what tethered them and us to anything truly meaningful or stable. I wanted to scream. I wanted to cry. I did both of those things at times. I felt helpless. I didn't know what to do. As my three-year-old daughter says sometimes when I ask her how her day was or what she did, what she did, and she says, I don't have the words. I didn't have the words. I didn't have words. I felt like I had nothing. And it felt like a free fall. I thought I knew the language of silence but I'm not sure I did. I had and have been learning a lot about it. And there's nothing like feeling like you're falling through the gaps of everyday life on the breach of fear of losing everything you thought you knew that makes you finally open up to the mystery of that which you don't currently understand but might be a deeper truth to take root in your heart. The language of wonder. It's a language of silence, of unknowing and yet faith. I think of so many students who go off to college or entering into a different phase of life than one they've previously known. Many students, as is normal and developmentally appropriate, have constructs for how life and God work, 
and exposure to new people, new ways of thinking, new experiences that are different and outside their comfort zone can cause disruption to those constructs. And those previous constructs or words or assumptions about life and God don't quite fit. They weren't wrong, though, though maybe some of them were, but the constructs need expanding. And it can bring you to the breach of fear and maybe even a little delight. Learning the language of wonder can be a way through that kind of silence and darkness. I'm thinking about parents of these students who don't feel like they recognize their kids anymore. The construct and grid they had for who their child was doesn't really fit anymore. And that can be a whole other experience of silence. This kind of experience for parents brings me to the second way to speak the language of silence. The language of silence is a wintering. I want to go back to the text in Luke 2 because there's something else that Mary does here. It says that Mary treasured up all of these things in her heart. She's treasuring up. What's happening in this moment? There's the joy of her baby being born, the affirmation of the promise that she was given being realized in the visit from the shepherds. Mary is preserving this moment. It makes me think how plants and animals prepare for winter. A book entitled Wintering describes the extraordinary metamorphosis plants and animals undergo to prepare for winter. They may never choose winter, but they don't fight it. They prepare diligently and store up for what's to come. The author says winter is not the death of the life cycle, it's the crucible. Winter comes in all different forms, seasonally, cycles in our life and biology, tragedy, heartache, sickness, the feeling of losing your child, the feeling of waiting for life to be different, to get better, the parts we just want to skip. These are winters. There will be winters to come for Mary. She will witness the death of her son. She will feel the pang of letting him go as he begins his ministry and hear him redefine his family. She will watch her neighbors, who she grew up with in that small town, force him out with vitriol and hate. Mary will suffer, and I think she knows, certainly not the details, but she is treasuring this moment with her baby boy in her arms to help her survive the winters that are to come. And God is in it all, in the beauty and pain intermingling in this moment, and the harsh moments to come. But Mary doesn't ignore or hide from that reality, however faintly she may sense it. She prepares for it. She has eyes to see that even winters will turn to spring and then summer. She has eyes of faith that tell her so. And this brings us to the final lesson Mary teaches us about the language of silence. The language of silence is waiting, active, expectant waiting. Active isn't passive. It attends to life in all the moments that feel like waiting, and it has company. Think back to our opening text when the angel goes to Mary. Mary hears this news in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and the angel leaves her, and the text says this in verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in a hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. God gave Mary 
her cousin, Elizabeth. Part of how we speak the language of silence is by learning it with other people and practicing it with them. And just a reality check here, there is a possible 80-year age difference between these two women, but God gave them to each other, however imperfect the match, however different they may have been. And I have to believe something very special happened between them as they waited for their sons to be born. This tells me something about how important each other is in waiting and to learning this language of silence. The language of silence doesn't just help us be receptive to God, it helps us be receptive to each other. I think of how much life feels like waiting and how much we need other people in the waiting and how much other people need us in their waiting. I'm thinking about this language of silence and the implications that it has for the kinds of relationships we hold. There's a silence that listens, listens without judgment, that does not listen to correct or preach or teach, but listens with a compassionate gaze on the other, that's willing to wonder about the preconceived notions we have about what the other is saying, or what we project God to think about what the other person is saying. A silence that wonders and waits for the other person to speak with their mouth or with their body, a listening with a not knowing. As someone who has spent most of my adult years working with students, middle school, high school, and even college students, I think about young people in particular, and I think about how hard it is to grow up, period, and to grow up today with all the statistics around the mental health crisis happening right now, which, by the way, is physical and biological. I'm thinking about a silence that creates space for them to share what they are really feeling without dismissing or minimizing or fixing but holding it as true and painful. There's a silence that creates safety as we patiently wait for another to share their heart, their truth. There is also a safety, a silence of presence. I'm thinking of the Jewish practice of Shiva, celebration and mourning, standing in silence when there's nothing to say. But there's a language of silence that is at work in the waiting and the mourning. I'm thinking of those among us longing to be mothers or heartbroken mothers or mothers silently waiting to conceive a child or silently mourning a miscarriage. I think about the cultural norm it is to wait until 12 weeks to share the news of a pregnancy for fear of miscarriage as if mothers and fathers should be left to their own to mourn and suffer the loss. Mary's story in the language of silence invites a language of active waiting, of holding the mystery of the possibility of heartache and loss with others. Two, three, six, twenty, however many. Waiting is another way of saying the in-between, the not knowing, the I wish I could skip to the next part moments. And how much of our life is just this? There are moments of glory and moments where we feel like arrival. But are they not fleeting? We are a waiting people. And learning the language of silence as waiting, wordless mourning with one another, sharing news we aren't sure of the trajectory of, this is the language of silence that acts as a bridge and an opening for a way forward, however indiscernible it may be. Because there's another kind of silence that is unsafe silence, 
a silence that can be crushing and that can be dangerous, when abuse goes unspoken or is silenced, when depression and mental health is unspoken or silenced, when injustice or discrimination is unbroken or silenced or ignored, being people of active waiting, expecting and creating space for others to speak is a language of silence and it is an act of love. All this to say, learning the language of silence holds space for silent moments to speak. The silent moments of wonder, of wintering, of waiting. Learning the language of silence holds space for silent moments to speak. This is the mystery of faith, of a God who is mystery and yet who has become known through a baby born in these circumstances, teaching us with his life, beginning with the life of his mother, how the language of silence can hold space for silent, uncertain, painful, impossible moments to speak. I'm gonna close our time with a song that two Grace musicians recorded for us, followed by 60 seconds of silence. And as you sit in this moment, I'll leave you with this question. What language of silence would help you in the silence of your life? Wondering, wintering, or waiting? Come, Holy Spirit, come. Must I?